The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There are two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb he had brought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And now, if this had been too little, I have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with your sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with the Lord for the child. He fasted and spent nights lying on a sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and would not eat any food with him, with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, he put on lotions and changed his clothes. He went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His attendants asked him, why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, you get up and eat? He answered, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can't I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Oh, thanks, Jemima, for, for that reading. Good morning to everyone. If, if we haven't met before, uh, my name's Ian. I've been a member here 
at TCU since uh, we opened in 2018. And last year I completed a Master of Divinity degree at the Bible College of South Australia. This is the second of two sermons Carl's asked me to prepare on 2 Samuel. In the first sermon last week, we looked briefly at the, reign, the beginning of the reign of King David, leading up to what was perhaps the high point of David's reign, when God promised him that his throne and his house will last forever. Today we'll see how that worked out and whether David lived up to his high position. We'll be looking at some challenging issues of sin in David's story and in each of us. Today's passage may be the lowest point of David's walk with God. Not the only low point, alas, but this one is extreme as David's weaknesses come to the fore. If you've heard me preach before, you may recall that I often begin with some amusing story or anecdote, but not today. Our story of David's sin and the tragic consequences is too somber. And I have to confess, it actually reflects my mood over the last couple of weeks. Susan and I have had a falling out with a friend who seems not to be interested in mending the relationship. Our family have come down with COVID only a week before a planned holiday, and the world's situation seems to be getting worse. If there's a time to mourn, this seems to be that time. However, amidst all the tragedy of today's passage, there is a spark of light, as we'll see. And of course, we know with 3,000 years of hindsight that there will eventually be a happy ending. But for David, that lies far in the future, and the tragedy is still to come. So let's recall from last time that David is a man after God's own heart, established as God's king over Israel. Though he recognizes that he has weaknesses, in chapter 7 we saw that God is with him and promised him a great name and a line that will last forever. So, what happened next? In chapters 8 to 10 of 2 Samuel, we read of attacks by surrounding nations which are defeated by David's army under its commander, David's nephew, uh, Joab. David's position appears secure. It seems that all is going well. But then we come to chapter 11, which gives the background to our reading today. The main story can be quickly told. David sees the beautiful Bathsheba, the wife of the great warrior, Uriah bathing on her rooftop. He is overcome by lust and seduces her, knowing that Uriah is away fighting David's battles. He clearly doesn't seek God's advice through the prophet Nathan or anyone else before rushing into this plan. Bathsheba becomes pregnant by David. David tries various methods to cover up his sin, eventually having Uriah placed in the front line of battle far too close to the enemy, where he and his companions are killed seems that David has forgotten his gratitude to God and his dependence on him for his kingdom. And this leads us into the opening of today's passage, 2 Samuel 12. It would be good to have that open as I refer to it. There are some echoes of 2 Samuel 7 that we read last week. In fact, it surprised me and to some extent challenged me when I started preparing this sermon how many echoes there actually are. But still, the contrasts are stark. Again, David has a message from the prophet Nathan, but the circumstances are very different. Last time he had an idea, but waited to get the prophet's advice before moving ahead. This time, too, he gets a message from Nathan, but what a difference. Last time David went to Nathan, and Nathan received a message in response. This passage opens with the ominous words, The Lord sent Nathan to David. 
the order is reversed. Last time he looked for guidance, this time he clearly hadn't been seeking godly advice. What had happened? We pick up in the second half of verse 1. Nathan had a story to tell David. One ancient version of this account has Nathan present the story as a legal case for David to settle. In any case, attention is drawn away from David's sin. Perhaps David had been a bit worried about what Nathan might have to say to him, and this apparently routine matter would have been a relief. So Nathan tells the story of the rich man stealing the poor man's beloved lamb for a welcome feast, being too mean to use one of his own. Nathan's approach is well planned. It's always easier to see and condemn someone else's faults than your own. His approach is effective. David, the mighty king, sitting on his throne of judgment, responds with fury. This man deserves to die. Then his anger turns to fear at Nathan's chilling words in verse 7. You are the man. In another echo of chapter 7, Nathan recounts David's goodness to David. But now David's position is very different. In verse 9, Nathan demands, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Rather than promises of glory and honor for his house and line, there is foreboding of evil. Verses 10 and 11. The sword shall never depart from your house. I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. What a contrast as it echoes the promises of chapter 7. There, the Lord said he did not need David to build him a house, but rather that he would establish David's house. David rejoiced then at the great kindness of God. But now God's gift is marred. The house of David, the house built by God, will be embroiled in warfare and treachery, just as David used the enemy to kill Uriah and committed treason against God. David's sin will bring pain and suffering on the whole nation of Israel. The secret sin of adultery, which he thought would affect no one but the two people involved, has a national impact in the full view of the world. As Nathan told David in verse 12, he had done it secretly, but God will make the consequences obvious to all Israel and before the sun. David has passed judgment on himself. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He might well expect that God would carry out such a sentence, but instead the sentence is commuted. And here we see the greatest and most surprising echo of chapter 7. In verse 13, we see that David immediately repents, accepting God's rebuke, as he did the milder rebuke in chapter 7. Amid all the tragedy of these events, this is a spark of light. David admits his sin. No excuses. No attempt to put the blame on Bathsheba or on his circumstances. No attempt to say, I'm only human or pretend that the sin was inevitable. None of that. Just the bold admission. I have sinned against the Lord. Here in the center of the tragedy, the man after God's own heart, the man chosen by God to be the ancestor of God incarnate, somehow still shines through. No hiding or excuses, just repentance. I have sinned against the Lord. How often are we so honest when we are in the wrong? God hears these repentant words and commutes the sentence, putting away David's sin and sparing him from immediate death, concluding in verse 13, The Lord has put away your sin. David repents, humbly acknowledging his sin, and is forgiven. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. In Romans 6, though, 
Paul asks, shall we sin that grace may abound? Absolutely not, he replies, for sin has consequences. David has repented, he's acknowledged his sin, and is forgiven. But still, his sin has consequences. We've already seen some of these consequences. Um, David has murdered Uriah and also the other innocent bystanders in uh, David's own army. And there are more consequences to come, including a more personal impact. In verse 14, Nathan tells David that Bathsheba's child will die. The sin he thought secret has tragic consequences. When David's son becomes sick, he fasts until the child dies, but after his death, he goes to the house of the Lord and worships. Perhaps we can see how he prayed in Psalm 51. The heading of this psalm in some versions, such as the King James Version, refers to this event as a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. If you have your Bible at hand, you might look at Psalm 51, but some verses of it will be on the screen. Look how David begins with verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Perhaps the most striking aspect of this prayer is the honesty we saw in David's confession. No attempt to justify what David has done, he throws himself on God's mercy, trusting in the steadfast love of God. He himself may have drifted away from the right path, giving in to lust, but God is steadfast. God's love is unfailing. He can ask that his sins are blotted out. And notice that David says in verse 4, Against you only have I sinned. All sin is against God, though the consequences may fall on others. Verses 5 to 8 of Psalm 51 deserve some thought. The verses on the screen are from the uh, ESV, which is a clearer translation for this passage. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Recall, David has just lost a son who was conceived in an adulterous relationship. So while it's likely that David is referring to himself as being brought forth in iniquity, it may be also that he's thinking of his dead son who was literally conceived in sin. Perhaps he's expressing confidence that God will also redeem his son. Verses 9 to 13 are surely a a prayer we can return to daily. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Look again at how David is approaching God in repentance. No pretense of innocence, just an acknowledgement of the need of cleansing. Create in me a clean heart. Renew my relationship with you, O God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The joy of your salvation. 
I have to confess this sentence really challenged me. As I've said, I was feeling in a somber mood as I prepared for this sermon. This was a wake-up call. I was reminded that in the worst of times, I can rejoice that I've been saved. My salvation depends only on Christ, not at all on my moods or my circumstances. And why does David ask this? So he can teach transgressors God's ways, and so that sinners will return to God. Hard to do when you're down in the dumps. This passage, and indeed all of Psalm 51, makes good daily reading. But for now, let's return to 2 Samuel uh, 12, verse 13. David has repented, and God has put away his sin so he will not die. Yet the consequences remain. His son will die, and violence will return to the kingdom of Israel. So to quickly summarize the subsequent events of David's reign, told in 2 Samuel, he loses the peace, the, the rest that God has given him, there's violence and murder among his children. His son Absalom rebels against his rule, briefly taking control of Jerusalem and taking David's concubines, as Nathan had foretold. Eventually, Absalom's forces are defeated by David's army under Joab, and Absalom is killed. Later, a worthless man, Sheba, leads the northern tribes in a rebellion. Sheba, too, is defeated. But this rebellion foreshadows the coming split between the northern tribes and Judah in the south. The outcome of that split, ongoing war and suffering, is played out in the following books of First and Second Kings. The consequences were very real. Now I hope as you hear this story, you're not making the same mistake that David did. He sat and listened to Nathan's story of the powerful warrior king sitting in judgment, roaring, this man deserves to die then was confronted with Nathan unafraid of speaking truth to power responding you are the man so I hope you're not hearing the story of David as something remote in history David knew his sins and thought they were secret and he was safe are there sins in our lives that we think are secret could it be that as we hear of David as one who brought harm to his family and Nathan that we're in danger of hearing God's judgment you are the one Sins are forgiven, but their effects can remain. Their effects are not just on us, but also, as here, on those around us. David's sin has led to the death of his son, who maybe partakes in the sin of Adam, but is entirely blameless in David's adultery and murder. And he's not the only innocent victim. Uriah and his fellow soldiers were placed in an unwinnable situation and died. Joab, their commander, was ordered to place them there despite his own judgment and could be blamed for a crime that was beyond his control. Tension between David and Joab is an ongoing feature of the story in 2 Samuel and may well have contributed to the ongoing strife the people of Israel would suffer. David discovered that God's laws are not arbitrary. No, God's laws are wise. And breaking them leads to consequences for us and for others. Innocent bystanders like Uriah and his soldiers, Bathsheba's child, and all of Israel our sins may not have a, such a dramatic impact. We're not Vladimir Putin or a terrorist group like Boko Haram inflicting wars on innocent civilians. But our sins have real consequences. Speeding our car may seem harmless. We're good drivers and know what's safe. But others see us and fear, feel encouraged to do the same, perhaps with tragic results. Sexual sins lead to many consequences. Dishonesty between spouses and damaged relationships being only one aspect. Sin damages our witness to Jesus, 
how can we speak honestly to others about the salvation that Jesus brings if we're not following his teaching we spoke a few moments ago in the Apostles Creed about the community of saints the unity of Christ's church unrepented sin damages our relationship with God and with our fellow Christians breaking this unity if you were here a couple of weeks ago you will have heard Hendre giving a similar message from Romans 7 I am mortal man sold as saved, slave to sin I cannot do what I know to be right and then the wonderful response in Romans 8 there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus there is indeed a happy ending and the promise we can look forward to the day when all stories will have happy endings but for now the reality of sin remains David sinned but repented and received forgiveness we must follow his example don't attempt to make excuses turn to God in prayer confess our sins repent change our ways and then we can look for the joy of salvation God's commands and laws are wise today's culture encourage, encourage us to look after number one encourages impulse buying and impulse sex and we cannot give in to sinful temptation without consequences these may be for us or they may be for others in the words of an old hymn which we're going to sing in a moment our only way forward in times of testing and temptation is to trust and obey trust in God's wisdom and plans and obey his commands then we can be happy in Jesus knowing the joy of his salvation but before we sing we're going to pray given what we've just been looking at in David's story and his admission of guilt and sinfulness it seems like a good time to be confessing our sins and reflecting on their consequences now there are two errors we can fall into when we think of our sins David managed to avoid both and so should we the first is to try to avoid blame to deny what that we've sinned make excuses or try to conceal what we've done as David realized there is no hope in concealing things from God let us confess what he already knows the second error is to believe that our sins are too much for God to accept blame so completely that we believe there is no hope for us somehow despite all God's promises we are beyond redemption no like David when he convicted convicted himself with terrible sins let us place, place our trust in an all-powerful God who came in his son so that our sins are washed away and we can be white as snow there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus I don't know whether either error applies to you but as we pray be sure to hear both the judgment of guilt and also the word of forgiveness would you please join me in saying the words that will be on the screen as we pray to our loving God our judge and our redeemer let's pray father God like David we come to you acknowledging our sinfulness our pride when we seek to place ourselves above others our envy when we see others better off than ourselves our greed when we desire or take what is not ours our lack of generosity when we will not share with those in need our dishonesty in dealing with friends and colleagues our failure to acknowledge you as our Lord our failure to be an example to others drawing them to you Lord we come to you confessing our failures in word in action and in our failure to act thank you Lord that we do not need to despair thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son to die for our salvation 
Give us the faith and humility to accept his sacrifice for us. Wash us clean that we may worship you, knowing the joy of your salvation and telling others of your goodness and love. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory with you, our Father, and with the Holy Spirit, our Comforter, world without end. Amen.